0: Hello and welcome to another episode of For the Love of Sports. My name is Michael Roziel and my guest today is Iris Zimmerman. She is a 2000 Olympian in fencing. She is now a project manager and a leadership performance coach at Valor performance. She's also a public speaker. Um, she's also just a really awesome person. So that was pretty cool, too. So I had a great conversation with Iris about her fencing career, about what went right, what went wrong, some of the crazy stuff that went along the way. And now what she's doing as a leader and per- leadership and performance coach. Absolutely fantastic. All around just great human being. So I'm very grateful for that. So without further ado, here is Iris Zimmerman. Yes. All right, today on For the Love of Sports, I have Iris Zimmerman. She's a 2000 Olympian in fencing. She's the project manager, a project manager at Valor Performance. She's also a leadership and performance coach as well as a public speaker. Iris, how are you today?
1: I'm doing great. I'm in my house. Is everyone okay. else in their house? <laughs>
0: I hope so. Crossing my fingers. That's definitely the, the, that's the whole thing we're trying to get through right now. Everyone staying at home hopefully sooner rather than later. Sports comes back and we all can be safely let outdoors. Uh, but until then, yes, thank you for being at home, Iris. We appreciate <laughs> you and what you do for this country. So thank you for that. But Iris, the first question I have for everybody, i um, for the love of sports, is why do you love sports so much?
1: Oh, Wow, you just drop a drop a big uh, question. It's right fun.
0: Away. It gets people emotional thinking about it. And then I notice when you say a bunch of stuff, we're going to tie it back in later in the episode because that's just <laughs> how this thing rolls. So
1: no, I like it. I like it. Why sports, and what do I love about sports? Um well, for me, it makes a lot of sense. Um, what I experience in sports and being under that stress and pressure and preparing to perform, all of those things and all the things I've learned, I apply it to day to day. Um, life performance, I guess people call it. So sports is, for me, this sort of microcosm of life. Um, And it's almost in a way like kind of how we want to see life be right. It's like if I work really hard, and do all the right things and check all the right boxes, then I can also be on the top of the podium. So it's like almost like life making sense.
0: (laughs) I love it. Sports. Yeah. That's pretty interesting. I haven't heard it said in that quite way. Uh, But I I think it makes sense. I mean, it kind of it's it's life is kind of like a game right if you kind of break it down far enough and you know you got to do what you got to do to win the game and as you said get to the top of the podium which i think is pretty impressive and you know obviously you know we could start there as i said 2000 olympian in fencing uh you got some cool trophies and some cool stuff behind you which i'm excited about so hopefully more (laughs) people do watch the video but how how does someone get into the sport of fencing because i'll be very honest the only times i've heard about it were when I watched the Olympics and when I went to high school and found out my high school had a fencing team, those are pretty much the only two times. So where, what were you and your sister and your family doing that allowed you to get into the sport early enough to the point where it could turn into a career?
1: Yes. My sister is an Olympian as well, actually a two-time Olympian in 96 and 2000. And, uh, we're about five and a half, six years apart. So, you know, my mother, and father, they're both immigrants to the country. And my mother, at a very um, early moment uh, of being in the country, realized that sports is a big deal in the United States. And if you do a sport and you do it really well, you can get a a, a ride to a college. So she realized, like you know, the opportunity was there. So she um, was kind of one of these earlier people that would kind of hunt and peck for for uh, sports for her child. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't want to have my kid have any idle time. I want them to make sure that they're going from school and then doing and pursuing a sport. So she was pretty forward thinking in that model. I think everyone out everyone now is all about that of like what sport can I play so I can be on an NCAA team and get into in college. Um, so my father worked for Kodak. He's German. My mother is Chinese. And um, you know, my sister started fencing It was the only sport my sister did that she felt, um, not bored in, you know, this, she did swimming, she did gymnastics and did tennis and tennis is a thinking game, but I think it was just too far of a drive or something like that. But, yeah. you know, she, she liked the idea that you could think on your feet and strategize on your feet. So you're physically active, but you're also mentally active. And so I was probably three at the time she started and, you know, my mother being a mother and now me being a mother, I, I realized like my mother's decision to make sure that both kids did the same sport. So she didn't have to schlep them from here to there to everywhere. I was like, that's genius. So just get the kid mm-hmm. in and start them in fencing. So I was six when I started fencing and that's also early days, like even before or at the same time as someone like Tiger woods, where we're like, Oh my gosh, six years old. I can't believe they're starting a sport. So I did start the sport at six, not Uber seriously like uh tiger, but my sister was going. And so I would be there at the fencing club and it was, um exposure that way and there's tons of athletes that um the younger sibling gets an opportunity or greater opportunity almost because you're you're seeing it you're in it Mm -hmm. more
0: often right absolutely i mean i tell my brother all the time he learns everything he knew about baseball from me and uh you know my my older cousins and it's funny my my oldest cousin and i we would crush my younger cousins in baseball every year Joke's on us because they went and won state championships in baseball And in senior year. They all went off to play in college in some capacity. And him and I are, you know, we never quite got that. So they're lucky they had us. But I think you're 100% correct when it comes to that. You know, just the opportunity to see your older sibling play it. Of course, you want to be exactly like them, especially at that young of an age. So you're going to put in the energy, the effort. And as you said, your mom, very smart on her part. Let's just put, you know, drive one place, but get two kids out of the house. The math just makes sense to me.
1: It just makes sense. And we were living far away. And she's like, ain't nobody got time for that. So we're all going to go to one place.
0: <laughs> Respect that very much. I cannot disagree. And so at the time, you said at around six years old is when you started fencing. You said your sister was about six years older than you. So in 1996, when she has the opportunity to go represent us, the United States, I'm assuming, correct, in the Olympics, how old were you at that time?
1: I was about 15 years old and at the time I was also I had become world champion before that at 14 mm-hmm. so okay. it was pretty obvious that the trajectory to me and to others that I was going to make a team mm-hmm. at some point if it wasn't 96 then it was going to be in 2000. I was a very young sort of phenom on the outside. Mm-hmm. Um you know my coach at the time also was my sister's coach obviously and was a coach of the national team and actually wanted to, um, have me go as an alternate as well. Um, just because he knew I would be on the next team. Right. So Mm -hmm. some of that experience, but I was still a little bit too young. And there were also a ton of women who were, um, better at the time or more experienced. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, she, I was 15 and I got a chance to go to Atlanta. I, I did all of the prep with her. She went down to Atlanta. We trained all together. Um, and the cool thing, and the reason why, so, I just have to go back a little bit is that the United States wasn't very good at fencing and now Mm. we're really good at it. And part of the reason was this groundbreaking effort from the coach I had in Rochester, New York, which is really, which is where I am now. Um, it's the small town. This guy starts a fencing program and starts a very serious fencing program where he does so well. My sister starts to do well on the world stage and people start to move to Rochester just to train with him. Wow. So, 11, of the top 11 to top 16 women in the United States would be training in Rochester, New York before the 96 Olympic games. So I had that, that exposure. And that was a huge reason why I was doing so well. And the mentality shift, like the mental shift of, um, the reason why my coach was so good and why we, why we shifted that culture for the United States is because he just, took it seriously, uh, fencers before that point, they did take it seriously, but no one was really like cross training, Mm weightlifting, really pushing themselves, traveling to Europe, living in Europe for months at a time. So we really kind of changed that dynamic.
0: So you were pioneers essentially in the, in the fencing world here in the United States.
1: Yeah. So we, my sister was the first junior world cup champion for the United States, which means that at the end of the the whole season, probably about, you know, six to eight world cups, she was number one in the world. And at that same year, I won the um, under 17 category world championships, becoming the first world champion for the United States.
0: Wow!
1: And uh, yeah, for the United States in an any age category and anything. And, and that's partly due to the fact we just kind of like changed our our mindset we changed Mm -hmm. the way we approached uh training and we would take time off of school I mean there were months at a time I wasn't in in school
0: that's crazy I mean as a kid that was probably awesome and and how with both your parents being immigrants as you said how I mean this was probably confusing and like kind of a shock to them too right I mean this is weird for anybody's parents I mean maybe weird's not the right word but how did your parents Handle this and just say like, oh, okay, you guys are now going to go travel to Europe for a couple months. Okay, see you later. Like, how did that work?
1: You know, I think part of it is that my sister saw my sister was uh, very successful, and my mother was seeing that. And you know, she was probably a tiger mom before tiger moms were labeled labeled tiger moms. So, whatever it takes, we're going to do whatever it takes, we're going to make it happen. And our coach at the time made it seem like it was a normal thing. Like, okay, I'm going to travel with, it was very different times. Okay. And we didn't even have cell phones. I'm going to take your daughter. We're going to go to Germany. (laughs) You're going to fence. She's going to fence and I'll bring her back and she, it'll be great. I mean, she was a teenager at the time and it was a very different time. And by the time I was a good athlete, um, that had already been happening. My parents were used to it. My sister was also traveling with mm-hmm. me together. So, um, you know, we would, we would pack up in a van. We would travel a lot, um, Montreal, all, all over the world too, but also like locally. And then we would drive like these long distances to go to tournaments. And we, my parents never came because they couldn't afford to mm-hmm. like extra room, extra places. So it would be, um, the whole team piling into a huge 18 passenger van and then um, the team manager and the coach and we would just drive there and it would just have the team van people would make fun of that but we we had a team van that that never I mean we own the fencing club that would never happen now ever Mm -hmm.
0: right yeah a little different now I would have to say just going up to (laughs) someone's like okay I'm gonna take your daughter we're gonna go to Germany see in a couple months right now you say it to me now it's it is what it is. Uh, back then, again, as you said, it, things were a little bit different. So it, and it worked. I think that's the most important part of the story is it worked. Obviously, your sister going to two games, you getting the opportunity and earning the opportunity to go to another, I think, is incredible. And as you said, I mean, it was kind of I, I never want to say expected when it comes to Olympic athletes, because there's so much unexpected that goes into it. But as you said, I mean, at this point, you and your sister are pretty much, you know, on the junior circuit, just absolutely crushing it. When she got to go, and 96 was in Atlanta, so thank you for reminding me about that because that's way easier for you to travel to Atlanta and spend the time with her. What was it like? I, I mean, as you said, you got to do all the preparation with her. You have to do everything. I know there's no experience. There's not quite the same amount of experience as that, but what did you take away from the 96 games that you were then able to use in, in Sydney in 2000?
1: I think sometimes when you're, you know, one of the things that we have an advantage of is, as being a younger sibling or just, you know, a junior on a team having that experience is the experience, right? Like you go and it's not daunting anymore. It's not mm-hmm. like, it's the Olympics. It's like the Olympics, right? Like we're going to work towards it. It's another competition. So it it brings it down from its pedestal down to a place where it's attainable. Mm-hmm. So I think that's the point of taking um, the younger athletes, the, the coach, or the national coach at the time, my coach, took a lot of the the athletes or the younger athletes just to make sure that we um, had that experience so that we could Mm -hmm. take it from the place of being on a pedestal to a place that was more manageable um so that was that was the point of that right
0: that's incredible and also i'm i apologize are you a singer as well i can i should have put that in the beginning (laughs) uh
1: yeah i know you're trying trying to make me make fun of me call me out but no No, that was
0: beautiful what are you talking about
1: i sing to my uh, fencing students sometimes when they're not yeah. listening to me because i feel like uh i'm not a singer it's terrible uh, i'm a terrible singer. <laughs> um i um i would sing i sing to my students because when they're not listening they'll listen to the singing
0: they will absolutely <laughs> listen then i promised you that that was wonderful no of course i i kid i kid i kid um so as you said you know you kind of you turn it into bite-sized chunks almost you know it's not like this unobtainable goal now it's okay we're kind of on the path we're working to get there and then it's another competition you're going to qualify you're going to go you're you're going to compete what was it like i mean obviously so your sister goes in 96 then the two of you go get to go in 2000 how much cooler was it to share that experience with your sister and having the two of you there your entire family like what was that like and how much how much more enjoyable did it make it knowing that you know your sis- siblings standing right there next to you in some capacity
1: Yeah, when you're 19, it's like, you don't have great perspective, like Mm -hmm. perspective. So you're thinking like, oh, this is, uh, you know, this is whatever it is, it's another time." But to be honest with you, what brought it home was, and I think a lot of athletes will say this Olympic athletes will, Paralympic athletes will say it too, is the opening ceremonies. So we actually held hands walking into the opening ceremonies. And I think at that point, we realized like, whoa this is a culmination of all the things we've done it was pretty fantastic and um you know fencers don't get it whether we have this huge crowd roar roar right we're in a mm-hmm. huge stadium and you can hear it and people are chanting and even now i can kind of feel what it feels like and uh i think it brought it home for us and how much work we've done and what we put into it and and um it was it's unbelievable to be part of there are only three people on the team so you fence individual you also fence a team event and so there's mm. only three people so it's two si- the siblings wow. plus another person. So it was, it was a very intensive experience. And I think it leads us um, to continue to be as close as we are even now. Um, so, and we owned the fencing club together for a very long time too. And uh, it, it was a very, very intense experience. When you're in those types of experiences, I don't think you realize like how amazing mm-hmm. it is. And then I think in retrospect, you're like, damn, we, we made the Olympic team together, you know? So, um, but yeah, what brought it home was that opening ceremonies experience. It's, it's nothing like, um, any athlete experiences. I'm sure football athletes might experience that, but you know, us fencers, we never experienced that. It was unbelievable.
0: It is such a, you know, I've spoken with the many Olympians at this point and the, the always the opening ceremonies is something I want to know about because this, the, the, the pageantry that goes around it, the opportunity, um, just having as you said all of those people cheer for team team USA or team whomever or wherever you're at and it's just the energy in the stadium i've heard is is unrivaled and people that have gone to multiple games they say every single time they feel it and every single time they want to continue to feel it cuz there's nothing like it and so i mean that part sounds like it was an absolute blast what about the the competition aspect as you said with being in a being in fencing just a sport that you know you're not gaining you know tens of twenties of thousands of people to come watch your events now you know there are you know give or take i mean two thousand so maybe not a billion at two thousand but now you know these events around the world especially during the olympics you get an easy billion people watching some of them in some capacity how did you again so you were 19 so maybe you could kind of decompartmentalize this a little bit better but how did you handle that aspect of knowing like okay this isn't it's just another event but it's not quite just another event
1: You know, it wasn't the people that threw me off a little bit. It was just that the competition itself was so different. Um, When you fence in a regular World Cup competition, it's two days of competition, you have round play, and then you go into a direct elimination. When you go into the Olympic Games, it's an automatic direct elimination. Oh, and wow. you know, you know, for months beforehand, who you're going to fence. So they're watching videotapes of you, you're mm-hmm. watching videotapes of them. So it's a very different experience. And then on a on a micro level, it's, it was a different experience for me too. And being 19, it was kind of hard to kind of shift. Because um, when you go in, you go into this holding room,
0: mm-hmm. they
1: test all your weapons, and then they announce you and you go out and th- I that's kind of par for the course now. But when we went there, the Olympics was a totally different experience. And you're in a holding room looking at your opponent. <laughs> they're warming up. You're warming up. And you're like, "Uh, <laughs> you know, so it was it's it it, it is very jarring because as an athlete, you're used to routine. You're like, mm-hmm. OK, I know it's two days of competition. I'm gonna, and, and you're a baseball player. You were a baseball player. So you know how important that routine is. And it's like the same thing. And then it's like you show up to the biggest competition and they're like, OK. You're not going to be able to change until the last minute, and then we're going to introduce one person, and then an hour later, we're going to introduce you. And so you're kind of like totally thrown off of your routine, and and so I think that's the one thing that was hard for me. But the the team competition went a little bit better Um, because you do the, the individual, the team went better also because you have teammates with you. Um, that kind of help you. And we did well. I mean, we did very well, better than um, other women's foil teams had in the past. And people were kind of um, hoping we would win a medal. We were hoping we would win a medal. And, uh, and that was un- really unprecedented. I mean, mm-hmm. Americans would never go into the Olympics and be like, we'd be like the fodder a little bit, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, they'd be like, Oh, once we get through the United States, we're all good. And then that's it. Right. So like, you know, we were that team, we came to actually play. And so we did, we did very, a uh, very good job. We uh, made it to the, the bronze medal stage and it wasn't the people. It really wasn't that, um, you know, in the end we actually lost by two touches and we lost on a penalty. Not mm. like a, we didn't lose on an actual hit or a target hit. It was like a, a penalty. So that for me was like a little bit kind of annoying. Yeah. <laughs> um But, uh, but yeah, I I think the Olympics were just hard, not because of the big crowd, because of all of that, or who, who was watching, it was more the, um, the disruption of the routine and Mm -hmm. my, my personal inability to be flexible around that.
0: Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, it it makes sense. And I do want to say thank you for, for bringing up my JV baseball career. You know, those two years were (laughs) the best years of my life. So let me just say that right now, but no, I mean, the, the routine of being an athlete, you know, especially an elite athlete at that high of a level, as you said, you know, it's not the way your coach was managing it was kind of out of the ordinary, at least for fencing here in the United States. And that's how you got there. And then it's just crazy to me how many stories I hear where once you're there, it's just completely different. You know, the the competition's different. The way the competition structured is different. Who's there, how it works. That part's crazy. I'm sure the media, I don't know, again, this is 2000. So it's not quite like the last couple of ones, but what about did the media, did you have fun with that? Cause I've heard athletes again, coming from these smaller sports where, you know, it's, You talk to the same reporter twice, and he's an really nice guy. And now you're talking to national media members from Fox and CNN and MSNBC. And you're just like, what the heck is going on? Did you feel any of that? Or did you kind of have fun with it?
1: Um, Some of it was fun. Like I did a 17 magazine photo shoot. Uh, I flew down. Yeah. I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. go. Yeah. It's hard because at the time I was an athlete. So I'm pretty like. Yeah. And in the 2000s, they hadn't had like Lululemon and all these things for like, oh, an athletic body. So I'm trying to like fit. I got like off the rack um, athletic wear and the one I'm I'm trying them on and like my shoulders aren't going in. And like she's like, maybe we'll try this size. And I'm like, maybe you need to go up another size. Um, So we did. I did a 17 magazine shoot and that was cool. They flew me down to New York City. We did the 17 magazine shoot, Um, you know closer to the Olympic games. And then I do remember like after you lose, they're like in your face with like a, a, Mm -hmm. um, with that. And, and I think part of it lends itself to this sort of feeling that a lot of, um, and you had mentioned my alumni experience uh, this feeling for a lot of Olympians that like, there's all this hoopla and then there's not, and there's nothing. And then that's, that is more difficult, I think than anything else. And yes, like now you have to manage social media, you have to manage media, you have to manage all of that also in order to get um, funding and and sponsorship. So those are extra pressures that, perhaps we didn't have, we just put everything on a credit card and paid for it later. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that was easier, right. Than than having to kind of farm out to try to figure out like, how am I going to make this money? You know, who who are my sponsors? What can I say? What can't I say? What do I need to wear on the podium? I mean, those things are real stressors that, that athletes have to deal with. But I think if I can tell you a story about what it's like right after the Olympic games and, and why Olympians feel this sort of down so you are in a minor sport. Then you go and there's all this hoopla. When I was uh, in Sydney, Australia in 2000, I had the the credentials, an athlete credentials. And if you had an athlete credentials, it was like you're Michael freaking Jordan. I felt like mm-hmm. I was like, I was Madonna, okay? I was like, I am Madonna. I tell that to kids, you know. In oh, they school, have no idea. They're like, who is Madonna? And I'm oh. like, oh my God, I'm so old. But anyways, I felt like that. Like I could go anywhere. I'd flash a badge. They want you in all the okay, let's just say I went to a lot of clubs. So I went to a lot of the clubs, I was going out, you know, going all the places, you're getting in everywhere, you're feeling like a celebrity. And the day of the closing ceremonies, we went out to go out to this club we usually go to, like all the nationals, we all kind of come together. And the guy's like, you do realize the Olympics are over, I don't care who you are. Whoa. And that's it, Mm -hmm. it. that's what happens. Like it literally is like, that was yesterday, what are you doing for me today? That's it. Close. That
0: and, and, is, that's that. I mean, like <laughs> it's such a cutoff too. It's not like it's a slow decline. It's not like, okay, it's a week out lady. What are you still doing here? Go home. It's no, like it's yesterday, the day of, as you said, of the closing ceremony, sorry, you don't, you know, nobody cares anymore. And that's one thing I hear from a lot of Olympians as well is just just that weird, as you said, the hoopla around it and just the intense feeling and then, you know, three years go by and no one really cares who you are or what you do or how you've been. And now, okay. Oh, it's an Olympic year. Let's pay attention again. Um, so it's, it's very weird. I mean, how, so then how did you then cope with that afterwards? I guess. Not well. (laughs) Honesty. I appreciate that. Iris honesty.
1: (laughs) You know, that's part of the reason why I'm,
0: and also I apologize. I don't want to cut you off, but you were also 19 at the time
1: yes so you're a teenager
0: well. your head's inflated <laughs> your hormones are going crazy nothing makes sense anyway you're a freshman or sophomore in college I know you took a, a couple years off uh it's like how the heck does a teen it's one thing if it's like a 27 year old okay maybe you can kind of level back out but a 19 year old you think that's probably going to be the rest of your life right
1: it it was terrible. I do have to say, and then not only that, like I go from being an Olympian and then I go to Stanford university where now I'm like the dumbest person in the class, right? Like, (laughs) I'm not saying that I was, but it felt that way. You know, like you go from, and there is some cachet like on the, uh, Oh, that's an Olympian. And there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of Olympians at Stanford. Let's just call a spade a spade. I mean, there's a lot of Olympians at Stanford. So you go from this sort of special feeling to like, you've got to be some a, a normal normie, you know, like you've got to go to the like normal life. And it, it's hard because it was always normal life. It just in your mind, it was a totally different mm-hmm. place. And then also don't forget, you're going from like being uber focused on one thing. And your whole life from from morning to night is always focused on one thing. So now you're just completely like, who am I? What am I doing? How am I doing this? What what happens next? Um, so at 19, I didn't have a whole lot of help. I wasn't, you know, I didn't know about therapy. I didn't know about getting help. Like I just kind of ran through it. It was a, it was a big um, down depression. And, um, and I think that, um, you know, it was very hard for me to get through school. Um, you know, and I, I, and it's part of the reason I probably went for more than I went for the 2004 games was an alternate. There's a long story there, but, um, and then in 2008 going for games that I probably shouldn't have given so many injuries and I just Mm -hmm. needed to move on and you can't move on. And so you see a lot of these athletes, like it's, they can't move on. Their identity is so wrapped, wrapped in, in that. And then you have this like, you have this euphoria and then this sort of experience. And so you can't let go of that. And so I do think the word identity is super important is because when you're that focused on a goal, all parts of who you are become that, that's it. I am a fencer. And so until I, it took me a long time um, to figure out that I am I am a student at Stanford. I am a, I am a fill in the blank. I'm not just one thing. And it, and I do have to say, it just took me a long time and, and, um, and we can talk about it later on. But uh, the reason why it was so hard in 2008 is I had PTSD around some other things, but, you know, I've dealt with a lot of that. I've dealt with a lot of the depression. I've dealt with um, much of that. And I can see it in some of these athletes, Um, and it's, it's why I do what I do now is I can see it in high performers is when we forget to really take care of ourselves, to Mm -hmm. take care of what's solid in us to, to be grounded. You can lose yourself in the pathway, even if socially it's socially acceptable, right? Like people like, Mm -hmm. ah, you're the best of the best of the best of the best. So it's all good. So all of the effort you put in, it's all awesome. And, and then in your head, you're like, oh, this is the, this is so healthy. Me just like focusing in on one goal and, and that's it and being the and doing whatever I can do to get to the top. That's healthy. And I think we forget sometimes that's probably not something we should be like mm-hmm. championing, you know? Yeah. And so, Yeah.
0: It's Well, thank you for all of that. Sincerely do appreciate it. Um, that's what makes this my favorite thing I get to do is because I get to hear these types of stories and what other people go through and now how we can help them. I think that's the most important part. And that's obviously what you've laid uh, a lot of your, you know, future and, and current life's work to doing is to helping others. And so we do appreciate that. So thank you. Um, and yeah, I mean, it's just, it's you, as you said, you started fencing at six. You know, you started traveling by the time you were what, like 10 or 12? And now 19 rolls around and you make the first Olympic game. So the second, I mean, you add four or 23, you're still in the prime of your career. Of course, you're going to make the next one. 27, that's even a pretty good shot too. You you should absolutely make three games at that point. And obviously, as I said, it's not actually expected. You know, there's so much other stuff that goes on, especially when you have four year, you know, it's, it's a its a four year sport, right? Everything is done in quadrennials and you have to be peaking and mentally fit and, and correct and, and healthy at that one time, but you also have to make sure you, you checked all the boxes along the way, which is make, it just makes the Olympics while incredible. And we all love it just that much more frustrating for the athletes that are competing in it. So first, thank you for competing in it. Thank you for that story and being very open and honest with us. I do appreciate that. And then, yeah, I mean, I guess what, as you said it was it was very difficult for you to come to terms with, you know, I'm not just a fencer. I'm I'm a student, I'm an athlete, I'm an incredible singer. I'm going to start helping people later on in life. Um like how what were what were those next few years like? I know I know as I said before, you you took a couple years off during Stanford to try for 2000 the 2004 games. Mm-hmm. Um as you you already said you tried for the 20 the 08 games that didn't quite work out. At what point did you finally come to terms with I guess, yourself more than anything?
1: Yeah, there's no real like off-ramp, right? Like Mm -hmm. you have to kind of figure it all out. Uh, First, I want to start with like a historical reference and I've kind of looked through it is Pierre de Coubertin, when he started the Olympic Games, the purpose of the Olympic Games wasn't to have professionals make Mm -hmm. that their whole thing, right? So what you see in the the recent years is people are making this their full profession and they're fully expecting that, yeah, people should pay me for my personality and who I am, and because I can throw a ball really well or because I can run really fast. I mean, there's this weird expectation now of like, if I, for some reason, we've now made it everyone, everyone, like race walkers, fence, fencers, even too. It's like, but this is my profession now, mm-hmm. right? Which also kind of, don't you think, muddies the water a little bit. Um, at some point, it can't be your profession because you're going to be, You know, forty and having to retire in the sport, right? Mm -hmm. Like, what do you do at that point? What skills do you have? What can you do? So, Pierre de Coubertin, in historical measure, like he was saying, look, it's it's an amateur, it's for amateur sports. You go in one time, and everyone gets together, and it's Mm -hmm. a big world party. Because if you think about it, no one had fax machines, no one had, you know, you know, no one's Mm -hmm. like getting in a plane to visit with each other. This was our one time to all everyone get together. So you saw very few athletes making this a profession. This professional look is very new. And I think it has some positive side effects and some negative side effects. But for me, the ramp has been really difficult. So I, um, you know, I started uh, my career in my late 20s, early 30s. I you know, couldn't get rid of that identity right away. As you said, I started at six. So I bought the fencing club with my sister. Um, it was a way for me to ramp down. So Mm -hmm. I started uh, coaching. And then, um, thankfully, just kept going with the education, because that's kind of something that I've always uh, was always important to. And I'm also smart. So I like to like think and think about things and curious about things. So I went to business school. Um, But I was very lost. I mean, you can ask my husband when we first met, and I think I was in my early 30s or late 20s, right after the Olympic Games. And very lost, you know, like, what am I going to do? Who am I? What am I doing? You know, there was a lot of that. Um, There's a lot of therapy. There was a lot of like, discovering this, it's a lot of falling down a lot of skinning my knees. Um, And trying to figure out what success really means, right? Because like, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: success for me was like, I have to be on a podium. I mean, Christ, how can you live the rest of your Mm -hmm. life? Thinking like, that's the only thing that could bring you success that can bring you joy. Right. So at some point, your sport is no longer the process and the joy of it. It becomes a profession and a job and it becomes difficult to manage. Mm -hmm. So um, I think when I had my children and my focus was outside of myself, that was that was a giant um, switch around. My oldest is now almost eight. And then I found valor performance. I think it was a really helpful way for me to know that I had skills that were adaptable and that I could help other people. I really wanted to continue to teach and coach, but I didn't want it to be in fencing or just to be defined by that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm thankful that there was a startup that was out there that I could um, then apply my skills and apply myself and feel this sort of sense. And then I had to do a lot of thinking about what success means. And I think that that introspection for many years, all that therapy, all that thought really helped me to get to where I am now to help other people of like high performers who are very hard on themselves. Perfectionists. I'm a recovering perfectionist. I tell people like, you know, what's a healthier, more solid way so that you can make room for um, all different types of um, definitions of success, right? Mm-hmm. It's not just I have to be on top of the podium or I need to make X m- millions of dollars, right? Like, or I need to be the best, uh, sportscaster, or I need to have the best YouTube channel ever. Like it's, it's really interesting. Um, uh, it's been a very long road, a very mm-hmm.
0: long road. <laughs> well, of, of course, I mean, they're all, all the roads we, we want them to be long, right? Cause that means we're <laughs> alive and we're doing stuff. So I think that part's very important, but you know, it's just, it's, I really, you know, I do want to touch upon the two Olympics that unfortunately you did not Get to go to but i also you know buying that fencing gym club however you you like to say it i apologize i don't know the correct vernacular in fencing but as you said that was kind of your way to get on that off ramp it was kind of your way to downshift a little bit and kind of say like okay i'm still within the sport but it's not quite at the same level now i'm helping other people so you're kind of you can see already you're starting to transition to what you're doing now a little bit more as you already alluded to how you owned it with your sister if i'm not mistaken correct
1: Yes. She still owns it now. Oh, okay. Mm -hmm.
0: So what, I mean, is it the same one that you guys worked at in Rochester? Was it just like full circle, a hundred percent?
1: Yeah. So we actually grew up in uh, Rochester, New York fencing at the Rochester fencing center. It was called at the time. And then I came back to train for the 2018 with a different coach. Um, And I didn't make the team and the club itself needed help um, to revive it to a a new place and, and needed a new owner. So I called my, I hadn't made any money. I was, I was a poor Mm -hmm. Olympic athlete. Um, so my sister was working at the time in Dubai actually. And I called her up and I was like, we've got to, we got to do something. We got to get this club back and running. And to be honest, I was like, Oh, in three years I get my MBA, I move on. I Mm -hmm. do this, this and this. And, you know, and we ended up owning it together for about nine years and then, um, and then this past year in 2019, uh, is when I lo- I left the club. I still coach young children there, mm-hmm. but, um, my sister now owns the fencing club.
0: Very cool. And that's, it's, it's such a nice way. Again, the one that you grew up in essentially, right. And now you're able to help other kids grow up in it and, you know, give them that opportunity that you had, which is pretty, pretty darn cool. So I really did want to just touch upon that for a little bit. So with, um, With Valor, what exactly is Valor and what exactly do you do there?
1: Yeah, so Valor Performance is a startup uh, that started in 2017. Um, It's out of Boston and um, we provide performance uh, coaching uh, with a a platform as well and everything's remote. Uh, We connect uh, high performing coaches, um, high performance coaches, excuse me, with professionals and we help them deal with stress and pressure. Mm -hmm. Uh, So giving things like emotional agility, uh, oh, mental agility, emotional flexibility, um, optimism, conditioning. We have six sort of core principles. And basically, it's a lot of um, using sports psychology concepts and then kind of reframing them for the professional world. I've really gotten a lot out of um, working with people in the healthcare profession. Mm-hmm. Um, I, we started a new contract with that last year, and that's been really, really. Um, Fruitful for uh, I, I I've really enjoyed it, um, and so the startup keeps growing, and then I've kept growing professionally. So I coach there.
0: Mm-hmm. Um,
1: I've been taught how to coach there, and um, I'm currently getting an International Coaching uh, Federation cert- certification. Um, but I also do project management for them. So I'm in all parts of the startup, learning you know uh, customer success, learning different pieces of um, today. I spent the uh, time on the phone with the uh, engineers, you know, and the product and the coaching side. So it's been very interesting. And for me, it was also great because a lot of the coaches are um, Paralympic and Olympic athletes that have retired. Wow. hmm and some of them haven't. Uh, one of them is a two-time Olympic gold medalist, Karen Davies, and she's currently um, training for the Tokyo Games. So a lot of us have backgrounds in elite sports and have been elite athletes or professional athletes. There are people who have just, you know, been executive coaches, not just, but executive mm-hmm. coaches and and high-performing coaches. So um, and I think the difference is when I tell people about it, they're like, oh, you're training athletes how to perform. And I like that. Um, And I really enjoy it, but it was, it seemed not as challenging as helping professionals because professionals Mm -hmm. have to handle so much more. I mean, athletes, and I hate not to like put athletes down because I've been one, but it's very singular minded, right? Like you can wake up every day and tailor your food, your thought, your being, your every, every single thing, every cell in your body can be tuned for one thing. You're tuning Mm -hmm. a high performance sports car for a race. Mm. Okay. So what's different is is if you got professionals who need to balance all the things my relationships um, my professional career how to uh, manage moving up the professional ladder how do I manage my emotions like on a day-to-day so I can come home and pivot to my kids and and uh, how do I be more present so you know it's it's for me it's almost a bigger challenge to take some of these concepts and help people and help them feel like they're a high performing vehicle mm-hmm. <laughs> moving forward so
0: they can see themselves as a high performance sports car as you saw yourself right iris um yeah. so with with that out of curiosity so you you make the point that it's it's almost and again i'm going to use your words a little bit more difficult for professionals to do something like this why do you think so many olympians and paralympic athletes gravitate towards becoming coaches for these types of people
1: Oh, for valor performance, you mean? Correct.
0: Yeah. Um, that, did I ask that question correctly? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So,
1: so we have Olympians and Paralympians that have transitioned to being coaches. So, a lot of us, um, there are a lot of Olympians and Paralympians who are not going to be great coaches. Um, mm-hmm. And I think a lot of times when you're really, really good at something, you're kind of a a freak in the sport, mm-hmm. right? Like, mm-hmm. and uh, there's a book outliers. There's another book. about Yeah. yeah, And there's also another book and I'm, I'm forgetting it now where it talks about like what makes a difference between a really crazy good athlete and then someone who's good, but like, Mm -hmm. not like, um, the top level or pro level is that they have these like differences in, in body. Right. Mm -hmm. So like athletes have physical gifts and gifts at really high level athletes. So it's really hard for them to train other people because it's like, why can't you do it like I do it? Mm-hmm, and that yeah. kind of started like mm-hmm. that too. It's like, why can't you do it like I do it? But I think the athletes that sign up eventually and become good coaches and the ones that are at Valor Performance is that they've actually struggled a lot. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of struggle in their career. And and I'm saying that even for a two time Olympic gold medalist who's part of our group is they struggle a lot. So they have to kind of like step back and they've had to like look at their game plan how do I deal with my mental game? How do I keep pushing myself? How do I keep performing at the top level? How do I sustain that uh, performance? How do I continue to care? How do I continue to keep going even after this injury? So a lot of the the um, athletes that will be coaching are ones that have had quite a bit of struggle in their career because they've had to do
0: that work. Mm-hmm. And so with that, with you know, kind of almost hopping back into your story a little bit. So you, you were a coach at a uh, fencing club, right? You, you owned it. You were a coach there. Obviously you're still a coach there. You then went and to started to coach um, high performance professionals and what they're doing there. And as you you brought up the mental aspect and now I kind of want to go back to those two Olympics that 04 and 08, what, what was what happened? Why, why did you not like, tell me a little bit about those stories and I guess why you didn't make the team. I mean, it's probably not a fun thing to talk about, but I mean, if you want to talk about it, I'm definitely curious, like what was going on, especially after that first games, as you said, you know, after being literally on top of the world, doing whatever you want to do, and then it all come crashing down and in, in, in um heavy, heavy air quotes, how did you then go about those next few years in the run up to the four games? And then after being in the alternate, how did you then handle those next four years? to get to the 08 games how did that kind of time period um come out
1: yeah i mean it's not a difficult question for me anymore i always tell people don't worry i've had enough therapy it's all right um no but it's actually something that's important um and it's something that drives me still and the other day i was um actually thinking about that in a in a coaching class because um and i'm not going to go off in that tangent but um I had a coach who was extremely, um, like old school, tough, like, um, Mm -hmm. almost at this point you could say abusive, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: uh, and it was mental. Um, and then just driving us very hard. There was no like resting. It was just like, you know, work, work, work. And then if you did, if you weren't perfect, then you were punished. So, um, it was this sort of like perfection plus punishment cycle
0: mm-hmm. And when
1: you're, when you're yo- a younger athlete, it's really, and then on top of that too, is like, when you have a coach like that, you're always performing for that person. You're never really like performing for yourself or setting your own standards, setting your own success, levels of success and what you want out of it. And, um, you know, So I actually, in 2004, he was still my coach, and I had moved down to New York City, and only one person made the Olympic team. And um, a lot of stuff happened where I just lost trust in him, and, um, and it felt like he lost some trust in me. But I think, in hindsight, I think he lost trust in – he didn't know how to coach outside of his comfort zone. Mm-hmm. But I took that to mean I must not be very good, and I can't do it. So I actually didn't make the team by two touches. Uh, again two
0: touches that's uh, yeah. twice now oh my goodness
1: that's how my life goes Oof. so my um so I, it actually came down to me going to St Petersburg and I had to make it to the next round and I it was 15 13 the the match end um and I was the expected person to go at the time and I was I was on top for a long time and and part of it too was a disappointment and huge for me because um you know the person I was competitive with uh she had asked him to coach, uh, she said, can you coach me? And I, and he said, Hey, is it okay if I coach this person who's going to be your competitor? I said, you know, that's, that's not really kosher with me because I'm not feeling like I'm very confident at the moment. And then he coached her anyways. And so she made this game and yeah. So that, that for me was the beginning of the unraveling. Right. And so
0: it's one one thing to ask, which was nice, but then to not even pay attention, I guess he was asking, assuming you were going to say yes, but clearly that was not the case.
1: Yeah. No, the answer was, Oh, you're good enough. You'll make the team. It's okay. I just want to trainer because, you know, uh, you need someone to, to, to train with, but she's mm-hmm. really, she was really good too. You know, she was a competitive competitor and she made Olympic teams and she's a silver, silver medalist in Olympic games. And she's very good. So, um, so yeah, so anyways, it, it was that for me was the first unraveling. And at first when you're when you deal with uh that type of coach or that type of situation, your first instinct is to bring it on yourself. I'm not good enough and he doesn't care about me because I'm not good enough. I haven't performed, I'm not perfect enough, I'm not driving myself hard enough. So that's kind of my mentality after that. So I I quit fencing because I couldn't I couldn't find a way or a mm-hmm. path to feel like It was just a lot. It's all the emotions and all of the feels. And then I went back to school. I finished uh, schooling. I quit fencing for a while. And then some, uh, the coach from here in Rochester said, you know, you need to come back, prove it to yourself. You can do, do it on your own. And I think if I were given more time and I I was already injured, I actually have a prosthetic hip now. Um, But I had an injury to my hip and it was always bothering me during that year. Um, I think it would have taken me some time to get there, but I think I would have become better had I felt like, oh, um, I can do this on my own. But it was too, um, I only had two years to prepare for the 2008 Olympic Games and it was too much. There was a point where, uh, so I, I dealt with, I told you PTSD because of that. There was a point where I was, I remember this clearly. I was on uh, the strip in in Havana, Cuba. And I, I got on the strip, I hooked up, I put the, um, put the uh, foil in my hand and I looked up and I go, what the hell am I doing here? I was like, and it wasn't like, what the hell am I doing here? How to get? Here? I literally was like, I don't even know what this thing is in my hand. Like, can mm-hmm. someone tell me what I'm doing here? And it was really very interesting because the brain just sort of shut itself off. Um, it just didn't want to push anymore and drive mm-hmm. anymore. And I wasn't listening. I just kept mm-hmm. going and going. Um, so it was burnout,
0: right? What What's that feeling like? scary yeah right like that has to be something that you've done again since you were six i mean i don't remember too much before six so i kind of consider that the start of my life right and now all of a sudden your brain doesn't know what to do with it that's got to be just such a foreign feeling
1: it's weird like i i hooked up to fence someone i looked to the side i was like how am i supposed to do this like what do you do with this thing like where does it go you know i literally was like that checked out mentally Mm -hmm. and so And then you're trying to deal with, you know, when you when you're at the point in PTSD, when you're taking medication, you're also trying to regulate hormones. You're trying to regulate your mind. And you can't do that anymore just with like, you know, meditation and being in the moment. Mm -hmm. It's a a very different place. So when people say they're dealing with uh, that type of that that point you're not in control of that. Mm -hmm. So I think at that point I realized like, I'm not really in control of what's going on now. So I have to, I have to do the work to get healthy. And so I think it just took me a while to realize like, you know um, what had happened, what I'd been through, how to move forward. And I, because I was so injured and I told you I was, got a prosthetic hip. I couldn't do the healing through fencing. Mm Mm-hmm. I couldn't do it through physically like going to competitions and making myself feel better that I can do it without him. I had to actually do it in another way. I had to like decide what success was. I had to decide what, what, uh, what it meant to work through this. And then I had to decide what my goal was at the end is maybe to help people that have been through this. And I don't want to go off too much of a tangent, but yesterday I, um, or the other day yesterday, actually, when I'm, I'm training, um, for my coaching certification for professional coaching, not for sports, but for um, Mm -hmm. professionals. And they showed a video and this is how, this is how to sum up what happens when you have a coach like this. There were two people, it's a performance coaching and there were two people trying to learn uh, novices at golf, trying to learn golf swing, Mm -hmm. a golf swing, how to hit a golf ball. One person was a golf pro teaching this one guy. And then one person wasn't a golf pro and just a coach. Teaching the the woman, the golf pro was like talking a mile a minute. Okay, hold it here. Put your hand here. Do this now. Do this now. Stand here. You got to have your feet like this. You got to have your feet like it was just a constant, constant mm-hmm. like talking. So it was the guy never really kind of figured it out. He was just being following the directions. Now the the woman who was being coached, um, the guy was like, "Okay, how does that feel when you hold it?" She goes, "Well, it feels uncomfortable here." Okay, what would you like to adjust? he says to her. So what happens is, is that when you coach in that way, you're giving that person and empowering them Mm -hmm. in their, in their response, and you're making them responsible for their training. And you're, you're giving them the empowerment of success. Mm -hmm. Whereas when you're telling someone what to do, and it was really interesting, because the person said, when you're that kind of coach that sets the level of what I'm saying, and how I do it is the only way to do anything.'" then your level of success is only as where this person is. Mm-hmm. You're never owning that success. It's only this person's success that you're trying to achieve. When you really are empowered to, to be your own student, then you own your success.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Does that make sense?
0: Yeah, 100%.
1: And so I never owned my own success. It was always someone else's I was trying to achieve. And so that no longer fit for me. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's it. And, and I'm at a point now where I... I totally own that.
0: That's awesome. And congratulations. And thank you again for that story. That is, uh, you know, it's, I like hearing real stories, right? Like that's how people learn. That's how people do things. If we just hear the fluff, we're never going to make it anywhere. So I appreciate you being very honest with us on that. And, you know, it's, again, so w- during that time where you had to start taking medication and you were you couldn't remember how to use your weapon, I, I have to assume there was a couple of moments in time where you're like, a why the hell am i here and why the hell am i doing this like at what point do you were you just being stubborn i guess maybe is that the right word maybe you were just being a little hard head and saying no like i'm gonna do it this is what i said i was gonna do versus being like okay maybe maybe that was it you know kind of sucks to go out like that but maybe it was it like how how do you handle kind of saying you're done versus somebody else saying no iris you, you can't play anymore
1: what it takes to be what it takes to be a top level athlete is a double edged sword.
0: Mm-hmm. Right.
1: Like when you have to push through pain, when you're pushing through things, when you're doing things when no one else will do, first of all, those are all celebrated things, right? Of like, oh, this person's Olympian. They'll just do whatever it takes, mm-hmm. right? The yep. other side of that is you'll do whatever you it do takes. It, yep. <laughs> right. So you have to know that what makes you really good at something also makes you really bad at recognizing other things. Mm -hmm. So I, my sister ended up, um, I ended up, I was in such a bad place that my sister ended up uh, buying a ticket to Poland to the last competition I had. And I couldn't get it back together. I couldn't like, I couldn't do any of the fencing moves. Like my coach would say, hey, try to do this some simple thing. And I was literally like, I don't know how to do that, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it's just like, how do you go from an identity that that's your whole life to how do I do this? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I sort of fell apart. And I remember it was—it's like very dramatic. I should have like a movie. It was raining in Poland. Oh my I, goodness! I, yeah, you're I, right. I, yeah, it was raining in Poland, and I sat in the middle of the street, and I—I I remember feeling like I can't move, like I can't even take another step anymore. And it's like the body physically, if I can't stop your mind, because me, Iris was like, if I can't stop your mind, if I can't make you realize that you're really messed up, then what I can do is just Mm -hmm. physically just stop you. So I just sat and my sister came across the street, picked me up, literally picked me up. And then we got on a plane together and that was it. And that was it. I knew I was done. And I and mm-hmm. it was not any of my own smartness to say, oh yeah, maybe I shouldn't pursue this and keep doing it. Mm-hmm. It was, I, I'm gonna keep doing this until something really bad happens mm-hmm. to me because yeah. I'm not gonna be able to say no anymore. Um, and again, that's the double-edged sword. We wanna mm-hmm. celebrate this really s- strong piece of people, but you have to know that the other side of that, when when it's too much, what
0: happens? Yeah. And that you're hundred percent correct. It's just that it's, it's strong willed, right. Or it's stubborn, right? Like, like <laughs> that, that is that double edged sword, like whether it's strong willed if you got through it and you overcame the odds and you did everything and it's stubborn, if, what are you doing? Like, stop! You're Pasture your Prime. So it's very interesting, and I think the media it's it's an interesting way of going about it. And again, you know, and not to make light of a situation, but was there like a really loud clap of thunder and then like this perfect <laughs> bolt of lightning that went across the sky or anything?
1: You know, at some point there should have been. It was like so dramatic, and I sounds can, like Shawshank
0: can, kind of. You yeah. know what?
1: You know what? I sh- I was like when I make my movie, you know. Yeah. But um, I was just thinking, too, what I've learned, and, and I don't want to leave people with this, like, it doesn't work out or whatever. What I've learned is that, like, when you want to be really, really good at something and stay on top of the podium,
0: mm-hmm. things
1: become really extreme. Like, you go, you, you know, you're going to the very extreme. So think of, like, Superman. He's got all these superpowers. But think of, like, if he could never turn off his his X-ray vision, mm-hmm. you know, or yeah. never turn off his, which would be weird. But more of like the laser beams, the laser beams, beams. yeah, 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 yeah. is what I meant. Like if you could never turn those off, right? Like that's part of it is that you go to the extreme where you can never turn off these laser beams in your in your um, eyeballs. So like everything gets gets shot (laughs) up, which means when I'm a coach, when I recognize when people go to extremes, I'm like, well, you know, Superman can turn in and turn it off. Right, Mm -hmm. like there are situations where you can flex that stubbornness, and it's a superpower. But there's situations that where you flex that stubbornness, it's gonna it's gonna be to your detriment. Mm -hmm. So you have to learn how to flex those things, and then know which which pick and choose which experiences you're going to really flex on it, and you're also going to take it to a little bit of extreme. Mm -hmm. Recognize that. So you need that level of self awareness. So that's what I meant about it. Is like. I just didn't have control of the superpower of stubbornness.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's a uh, self-awareness. You bring that up that, that in itself is a superpower. If you can harness that and be able to figure out how your self-awareness works. Um, and I mean, there's a couple other things, but you're kind of given side eye. So I assume someone else is in the room potentially. Do you have to get going or do I have like, no, I'm two more-
1: you, you have time. I just was okay. wondering if my child was on the corner. <laughs> oh
0: Well, okay. I, only a couple more questions. I do want to, um, and then, the So again, you bought that uh, fencing club. You were able to kind of ramp down your fencing career that way. As you said, you're still in it. It's a sport you've been doing your entire life. So of course, you're going to do it. But I also just wanted to touch upon the other things. Uh, writing for a magazine, which I saw, which is pretty darn cool. You did that for a little while. You started public speaking. At what point, And then obviously, with the leadership and performance coaching, all of this did happen during that nine-year period, if I'm not mistaken, where you were owning the gym. So at what point did you start to realize or decide, like, hey, I'm going to start you know, I I I was a fencer. Now I own a fencing gym and I'm a fencing coach. At what point did you decide to kind of, you know, start to spread the trees a little bit and start to see like, where else can I start to move out into and branch off into to kind of just diversify myself as a human more?
1: Yeah, you know, I do a, a little bit of public speaking, but now as a coach, it's more like facilitating conversations. Mm. Um, I've never been an athlete that likes to like, I've never been someone super comfortable telling my story like up on a stage. I mean, mm-hmm. this is, this for me, makes sense. It's great. And I do commentary for that, that basic mm-hmm. reason yep. too, is I can talk into a mic and I don't need to be in front of a ton of people. Um, writing the articles, writing has always been pretty therapeutic for me. Um, so I've always had all these little things that I like to do. Um, and as I said, like, you know, I really, took time to really think about things that I could branch out in. so I would do little things here and there is that what I want to do do I want to talk in front of people do I want to do commentary do I want to write um and and how much do I want to pursue it and also just remember like being an Olympic athlete I only pursued one thing and I pursued it like all the way down the mm-hmm. path I also wanted to know what it would be like what people do when they experiment like I don't need to be the best of the best of the best at like writing I could just write and I was like mm-hmm. oh I can just write and I know, yeah, I can do something and not feel the pressure of being like the best of everything. Um, it was about three years ago that I started feeling like a little bit like this isn't fitting, right? It was like, kind of like an ill fitting jacket. Mm -hmm. I was like, I, I don't feel this anymore. Like I'm not joyful all the time when I go to the fencing club, I, you know, my sister and I started arguing more about what we're going to do about the fencing club and we weren't seeing eye to eye. And I was just losing sort of that passion for mm-hmm. it. And um, I'm definitely someone who wants to wake up and like really enjoy what I'm doing um, and put the work in. And so it just wasn't happening for me anymore. It was becoming too difficult and I was too negative about it. And also um, when you own a f- own your own business and when you um, have to work at night, cause that's what fencing clubs are. They're open at after school hours and I have small children. So for me, I was like, you know, um, the choice is there. I, I I have to be at home with my, I want to be at home with my kids. They bring me joy. Um, helping other people, teaching other people brings me joy. I want to, I want to do more of that and less of like, you know, um, wondering how much toilet paper costs and whether Mm -hmm. or not we should buy it now or a month from now. I was like, I don't about these decisions anymore or you know because those start to take over when you Mm -hmm. own a business it's not like oh this is great i just walk in and coach and then leave it's like you walk in then there's 800 problems and then you're like i wish i had more energy to coach and so you never really had the energy to do the things that i really really Mm -hmm. was connected to so for me it was um, those kind of things and it was also that learning of stubbornness like If I was the person before, I would just be like, "No matter what, I'm going to make this fencing club the Mm -hmm. best fencing club ever." And like, but I realized I was like, "Oh, this isn't fitting anymore. Mm -hmm. I really want to try something else." And and even if I'm kind of bad at it, I still want to do it. Mm Something else, right? It's still fun,
0: right? That's I mean, that's the cool part. Like, I'm not that great at this yet. Um, I'm getting better, of course, but hopefully one day I can get paid to do it. And until then, we keep on rocking and rolling. But Iris, this was absolutely incredible. Iris Zimmerman, 2000 Olympian, (laughs) uh, project manager and coach, performance coach at Valor, Uh, public speaker, I guess, kind of, soon to be script writer, soon to be just top Billboard chart singer. You knew I was going there. (laughs) Don't worry. I wasn't going to let that go. Iris, sincerely, sincerely appreciate your time today.
1: Yeah, I appreciate um the ability to speak and I hope, you know, even if it reaches one person they feel like wow, I learned something. <laughs> like for me it it makes a difference. So
0: I'm happy to hear that, but I promise it's going to reach more than one person. I promise <laughs> you that. Don't worry.
1: <laughs> I'm only used to reaching one person at a time as a coach,
0: oh, so, you know. Works out then. <laughs> thank you all so much for this converse, for listening to this conversation with Iris Zimmerman she was absolutely fantastic as you heard as you felt as you understand so please make sure to follow Iris on all of her socials everything of course will be in the show notes please make sure to give us a 5 star review on Apple Podcasts, on iTunes, follow us on Spotify, that 100 million dollars I'm coming for it and thank you for your time, it's the only thing we don't get more of so I appreciate you giving me some of yours and I hope you make it a wonderful day yes. <laughs>